0: Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to start reading in verse 12 in a few minutes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. Thank you for your great kindness to me. I look forward to reading those notes and cards uh, later in the day and uh, in the week. There are many reasons why pastors don't stay at churches for 20 years. Um, Some of it has to do with congregations that are mean. When I first started... When I first started here, there was a, a local pastor who, to his credit, has been in his church more than 30 years, uh, gave me a book or recommended that I read a book called Well-Intentioned Dragons. And it was about who to look for in your, in your church that was going to ruin your life. And uh, I looked through that book, and I have yet to meet any of those people at Grace. Uh, the, the, the real great heroes, of course, of 20 years of pastoral ministry are the people who were here 20 years ago. They are long-suffering people, extra rewards for them in heaven. Uh, When I started, uh, I told the search committee that it was my goal to be here for 40 years. As Scott said, I'm halfway done. So uh, if you don't like me, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) Now, uh, I have received uh, much more from this church than I have ever given to this congregation, and I give thanks to God for the privilege of serving here. Now your Bibles are open to Ecclesiastes 1. I have a warning for you. This is going to be the longest passage that we're going to have in this book, uh, which means today we're going to read a lot of scripture. We're not afraid of that because when we read scripture, it's the only perfect moment in our service. Uh, But in order to uh, uh, facilitate that or make that easier, I'm going to read it in parts and we're going to start in verse 12 in a few minutes. I'm going to pray, though. You keep looking up and down at the Bible because you're good readers of the Bible. It's wonderful, and I keep faking you out. But now you can bow your heads because we're going to pray. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today, and we thank you for the privilege of having your word open for us to read. Lord, we are not unmindful this morning, even as we meet, that it is astounding that we have copies of this in our own language. Each of us, we have, some of us have multiple copies of this book in our language to read. We're not unmindful of the men and women who throughout the history of the church made great sacrifices so that we we can read this book in the language that we can understand. You spoke and uh, by your spirit, the prophets of old wrote down your words, moved by the Holy Spirit, as, as you breathed out these words, and here we have them. Lord, we, we have your word open because we believe that it is through this experience that we have for the next few minutes that you will speak to us. You change us through this. We, we come to you this morning in faith hoping that these black letters on these white pages would, by the Spirit, be powerful and effective. Lord, I have no illusions. Sometimes you do this work quickly and amazingly, and and it's beautiful to see. Sometimes it's slow, most often it's slow, hard work. The, of the ninety-eight paragraphs that I have, ninety-seven of them are forgettable and will be forgotten soon. But Lord, maybe it's that one paragraph that will be different for all of us, that you will use to transform us and to change us, to give us hope when sorrows rise like we just sang, to to push us on, to give us a, a great vision of your supremacy in all things so that we might have hope and endurance and perseverance in following Jesus. Lord, we're hard after it. We're swimming against the stream. We are climbing hard. We are working against the flesh inside of us that is so uh, broken and, and in such rebellion against you. But we have your word and we're here and we in hope come that you would speak to us, teach us and transform us. Do that slow, hard work in us We're the sheep of your flock. We're the people. We're the stones in the building that you are building. We're members of the body of Christ. So help us for his sake that we might glorify him today. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen. So we started considering the book of Ecclesiastes a couple of weeks ago, and the goal of this book is to help you live a life that is meaningful and that is purposeful. So much of what we do in life is empty and futile, and it feels that way. It lasts about as long as the smoke on a candle that you blow out lasts. God did not intend us to live meaningless lives, but, but these are some of the consequences of living in this broken world. And before we get in deep into the discussion of what a meaningful life looks like, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, he calls himself the teacher, maybe it's Solomon, the teacher spends time tearing down all the ways that we try to build meaningful lives. Uh, this section of the book reminds me a little bit of, the hum, of a Humpty Dumpty, You remember Humpty Dumpty. He had a great fall. Uh, And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. Now, that poem, that nursery rhyme, was first published in a book in 1800 or 1810 or somewhere around there. It was around for a couple hundred years before that. Nobody really knows where that poem came from, that nursery rhyme. The best theory, uh, one of the most popular theories, is that Humpty Dumpty was the name of a huge cannon that used to sit on a fortress wall, this big round cannon, and it fell one day off the cannon, and all of the king's horses, the army, the, the, the men, couldn't repair Humpty Dumpty, that great canyon. Cannon. Maybe. But if I take Humpty Dumpty and I put it alongside this book, life in this world as we know it is now broken. And and as much as we try on our own, you can't put it back together again yourself. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is aiming at here, trying to teach us. This week I read a brief summary of this whole section of scripture by J.I. Packer. Listen to what he said Psalms teach us how to worship, Proverbs how to behave, Job how to suffer. Song of Songs, how to love. And Ecclesiastes, how to live. That's worth repeating, so I'm going to say it again. Psalms teaches how to worship. Proverbs, how to behave. Job, how to suffer. Song of Songs, how to love. And Ecclesiastes, how to live. In this section of Ecclesiastes we're going to look at today, he actually teaches us how not to live. How not to put life together again. He takes on three ways that we try to build our own lives of significance, and he tells us why they don't work. And then before he finishes, he's going to tell us uh, uh, how, uh, he tells us about the hope that we do have for living in this broken world. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about three things. First, we're going to talk about how we try to put life together. Second, we're going to talk about why it doesn't work. And just for simplicity, as you follow me, we're going to talk about the how and the why together, each one. And then finally, I want to talk about how God gives meaning to us as we live lives in this broken world. So let's start with the ways that we try to live a meaningful life. One of them, uh, and the, the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, begins, out, begins by talking to us about wisdom. Wisdom. One of the ways that we try to live a meaningful life is by pursuing wisdom. It should not surprise you that we start here. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature... It might surprise you, though, that he's going to say that wisdom doesn't work the way we want to. He actually has in mind a particular type of wisdom. The teacher is thinking about wisdom that tries to figure out the world without God. All the ways that we try to make sense of life without God. I'm on the verge, I think, of needing reading glasses. I've told you this before. A few months ago, I went and bought a Bible with bigger print because I needed the help. I even chose the bigger print over the fact that it doesn 't have maps in the Bible, which is a great embarrassment to me, but anyway, I needed the bigger print i 'm not sure if I need bifocals quite yet, but but uh, i let's just say I'm becoming increasingly aware of how long it takes my eyes to adjust to small print It's harder and harder that's what your eyes do, don't they They take the things that are in front of you and try to put them into some cohesive picture and your mind does the same thing with life you try to take all of your experiences and put them together in some sort of cohesive pattern so that that you can understand what's going on some sort of clarity on life and the teacher says that that is a frustrating experience let's look at it here uh ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 he says i the teacher was king over israel in jerusalem I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. He's using words here to tell you that he really worked at this. This is not a weekend project. This is something he poured his heart into. He gave himself over to us to this. And if this is Solomon, uh, we know Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,000 songs. He studied all kinds of plants and animal life. He, he really worked at this. He was no slouch. You can believe what he's saying. What did he find out? Verse 13, the beginning, the middle of it says, What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Now think about this with me for a minute. You guys are good readers. When he talks about heavy burden, is the heavy burden he's talking about, is he thinking about the heavy burden of trying to figure things out? the work that he went through to apply his mind to study and explore by wisdom, is that the heavy burden? Or is the heavy burden all that is done under the heavens? Which is it? What is the heavy burden? Is the heavy burden life? So he says, I really thought about it and life is really hard. Or is he saying, I really thought about it and it's hard. It's hard to think about these things. Which which is it? Now, I hate to say this, but I actually think that both of those ideas are true and both of them feed one another in Ecclesiastes. Life is a heavy burden and it makes figuring it out even more difficult. Um, Let's look at the rest of the text here to see how this works. Verse 14 I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes great sorrow. The more the knowledge, the more the grief. So remember his goal here. He's trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us that living a meaningful life by wisdom alone doesn't work. In fact, it's hard to do, if not impossible. Why? Because in the providence of God, we bear a heavy load. Life is hard. Figuring out life is hard. And the teacher attributes this to God himself. God has laid a heavy burden on us. Is that true? Is he being just a little bit more negative than normal or necessary? I think he's actually he's carefully describing the consequences of our rebellion against God. Remember how Ecclesiastes, the teacher, thinks a lot about Genesis in the first few chapters of Genesis. And he thinks about what God intended when he called the world into existence. God placed humanity in the Garden of Eden. He charges with working at it and, and keeping it. In partnership together, men and women were to fulfill the mandate that God gave and, and, and finish the work that he started when he formed and filled the world we to continue what He did by spreading knowledge of Him all over the whole world. But Genesis tells us that those first human beings did not want God's plans. In fact, they wanted the freedom and responsibility from following and making their own plans. They forfeited the privilege of God's presence and life in the garden. And as they forfeited and went out of the garden, God sent them out of the garden. God spoke to them and His words are a heavy burden. He said to Eve... Childbearing is going to be extremely painful for you. And the relationship between you and your husband, the the things that I designed for you to work together, they're going to be very difficult. He told Adam, he said, you know, you're going to work and getting food from the ground is going to be really hard. It's going to be hard, hot, heavy work. Thorns and thistles are constantly going to be in your way. It's a heavy burden. Now, there's mercy in, in Genesis 3. When you read the Genesis 3, there's mercy. God, God clothes them to cover their shame. He promises that He's going to send a deliverer uh, to, to relieve us of this heavy burden. But in the meantime, if you will not embrace the world that God has made, Adam and Eve, you will live in the world that you have made, and it will be very hard. We've already seen how Romans 8 20 and 21 fits into this passage. Look at Romans 8 20 and 21. Um, Here's a heavy burden. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who subjected it? God subjected it. But he has a purpose. In hope, or with the hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You Notice this. I read this passage, I read Ecclesiastes, I read Genesis 3, and I, I wonder to myself, I'd have to think about this more, but is there any place in the Bible where God does not, at the same time as he pronounces judgment on his people and condemns them, is there any place in the Bible that God does not also with that provide a bit of mercy and a word of hope? Does God ever speak a word of condemnation without also speaking to us a word of hope and encouragement? Is there any place in the Bible where he does that? It actually makes me think about that uh, when I discipline my children. Here's a word of condemnation. You broke the rules, you knucklehead. Here are the consequences. And here's a word of mercy for you too. I wonder if you follow that pattern. I'd like to get better at following that pattern. Hmm. That's just a passing thought. Life is filled with heavy burdens. They're the consequences of the choices that we have made as human beings. Grief and pain. And the damage that we have done to this world is so bad, so bad in fact, that there is only one way that God could repair it. He could have, I suppose, some people suggest this. He could have destroyed what he had made completely and start again. He could have done that. Actually, there's some people who think that geology and physics and evolution teach us that. He, I'm not sure it's in the Bible. He, he could have destroyed what he made and start over again. He, he could have done that. But wouldn't that have been a defeat? Here's an illustration. About ten years ago, somebody from the church very kindly offered us a playground the playground it was in her sister's backyard, and all we had to do to go get the playground was to uh, go and take it apart and bring it back and set it up and, at our house. It's wonderful. Good terms. I like that. So we went over one day, and I found out that the playground, it was homemade, it was beautiful, it was wonderful, was built on the slope of this person's backyard. So I took it apart and brought it back to my house and stared for a while at the very flat space that I was going to try and put this playground. So um, we thought about it. We made plans. I went and bought new 4x4s to serve as the main supports of this because the 4x4s were not the same length uh, as we needed for my flat uh, space of ground. And we started putting it together. My in-laws came for the weekend to help us do it. My in-laws are very talented people. They can do a lot of stuff really well, figure things out. And we started working on it, and it did not go well. Um, our reconstruction project ended when one of the 4x4s four fell on my mother in law, and the ambulance had to come and take her to the hospital. Yes. Uh, when the ambulance comes to your house to take somebody, your mother in law, to the hospital, the police come to make sure that there were no shenanigans going on. <laughs> the police medicine, the hospital, they had already been to our house to see our woeful construction project, and it was all too clear what had happened. Uh, My mother-in-law was not seriously injured, but uh, before she got home from the hospital, I took all of the lumber and put it in the garage as far back in the back of the garage as possible. And then a little bit later, my wife advertised it on Craigslist and a very enterprising father came and took it all the way to rebuild at his house. Hopefully he had a little slope in his backyard. I gave him everything. I gave him every piece of it. I gave him the untouched 4x4s that I never wanted to see again. Uh, this playground had completely defeated me and I wanted to get rid of it. Imagine God with the universe that we human beings broke. Will he be so overwhelmed by what we have done that he is defeated, so defeated by our rebellion that he has to destroy it and start again? Is the God we worship that weak that he can't fix what we have broken? That he has no choice but to start over again? I don't think so. God can fix it. Oh, but at a great price. The price of his own dear son. The Lord Jesus who became our sin bearer, he came, he lived the life that Adam should have lived in the garden, but Jesus did it in much worse circumstances. And then he died the death as Fred said that you and I deserved to die. This punishing death on the cross, bearing God's wrath, he rose again and rescues all who believe. He gives life and forgiveness to all who receive it. How often, how keenly do you feel the weight of what the author, the teacher is saying here? Life is a heavy burden. God has borne that burden himself. He has lifted the burden from us in a way that is uh, only possible by bearing it supremely himself on the cross Everybody who's a Christian has consciously turned and trusted in Jesus and what Jesus has done. If you have not, you're not a Christian. I'd love to talk to you more about that uh, later. But that's what it means to be a Christian. Someone who has turned to Jesus and trusted in Him for what He did on the cross. The damage was so bad. The damage was so bad it required this sort of sacrifice to repair and there is not one area of human life that is untouched by this brokenness. It means that trying to put all the pieces together by ourselves is nearly impossible. You will struggle with this your whole life. There will be things in your life you just cannot figure out. It's true whether you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter. Verse 15, remember what it says? It says, There are crooked things that cannot be straightened. You you can pray, you can fast, you you can think, you can study. There are just crooked things that cannot be straightened. There are lacking things that cannot be counted. Trust me, the teacher tried. He tried. He's wise and he worked and he labored over it. There are pieces of life in this world that just don't fit Some of you know where to go with this. Do you like putting puzzles together? We do occasionally in the winter in particular. We put puzzles together. And what's the most frustrating thing for someone who loves puzzles? To find a 500-piece puzzle with only 499 pieces in the box. That missing piece. And the teacher says, There are always missing pieces. Always missing pieces. There will always be parts of your life that are bent and broken and just don't lie straight. Think about how we try to puzzle our way through suffering in this world. That's where these, we feel this keenly. We don't have all the answers, we don't have nearly uh, the answers. There are several places in the Bible where, where Scripture tells us what God is able to do through suffering. There's lots of places in the Bible that talk about that. God does great work in the midst of suffering, He's like a surgeon. A surgeon heals people, and how does he do it? By cutting them open. If your surgeon did on the street with a knife what he does in the operating room with a scalpel, he'd be arrested. Can't do that on the street. But in the operating room, he cuts you open to heal you. How does an oncologist cure cancer? She puts poison in your veins. God does great things in the midst of suffering. The Bible tells us that over and over again God uses suffering for our good. But there are no full explanations as to why he uses particular suffering at certain times with each of us. Why Why? Why infertility for this couple right now? Why prodigal children for you right now? Why this financial catastrophe for you right now? What is lacking cannot be counted. Look at verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. I, um, several years ago I read a book. I, I've talked to you about it before. It's, uh, it was called Lincoln's Melancholy. It's by Joshua Schenck. It was a book about Abraham Lincoln and his lifelong battle with depression. There was a period of time when Abraham Lincoln was a young, young man where his friends, for a couple of weeks, went into his rooms where he was staying and took out every sharp object because they were uh, scared that he was going to take his own life. Uh, it was a fascinating book, writing about his depression. And, and one of the things... Um, well, today, when someone is depressed, we try to make them happy. You need medication, you need therapy. We're going to cure your depression... But in Lincoln's day, there were no psychotropic medications. Instead, actually, there was an aura around people who were melancholy, who were depressed, that they had some sort of wisdom, some deep insight into the world, some special knowledge. I'm not sure that's true, but at least they understood, verse 18, that with wisdom comes sorrow, grief because you see crooked things that can't be straightened and lacking things that can't be counted. There's there's things about the world. If you look long enough and carefully enough about it, you'll see it and it will increase your grief. You might think that you can have a meaningful life by being wise. It won't work. Uh, Let me give you two reasons why wisdom doesn't work. We've already discussed in detail the first one. Wisdom produces sorrow Wisdom, especially divorced from God, produces sorrows. We've talked about that. Here's the second reason that wisdom won't work to make a meaningful life. Wisdom won't save you from death. It won't save you from death. Let me show you that from chapter 2, verse 12. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Then I turned my thoughts, he turns again to wisdom. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fools walk in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said this to myself, This too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Wisdom is good. Trust me, wisdom is good. It will save you from a lot of foolish choices, but it cannot save you from death. Can cannot give you a lasting legacy. You are still going to die and be forgotten. Last Sunday, I realized, last Sunday afternoon, that I made a terrible mistake on Sunday morning. Um, some of you are here, most of you are here to remember this, so I was talking about being forgotten, and I speculated about how many of you remember your great-grandparents. And, and I teased you about telling me at the back the names of your great grandparents that you couldn't remember. And you know what happened? 75% of you, as you were leaving, said, I don't know any of them. Ha! And actually, you should be saying, I don't know any of them. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Right? Uh, I mean, it was funny and it was cute and everything. But, but uh, you're supposed to be discouraged by this. Maybe instead of thinking backwards, you should think forward. Your grandchildren, your grandchildren that you love, that you're spoiling, that you spend time with, they're going to have kids that won't remember you. It's not your grandkids' fault. Your grandkids will tell their children about you and about how you invested in their lives. They'll tell them that. But your grandchildren that you have right now are going to have children that won't remember your name. And it it won't matter to them whether or not you were a wise or foolish person. All of that will be gone when you die. One of my great-great-grandfathers was an alcoholic. Another one of my great-great-grandfathers was a veteran. He owned a store and he was a member of of the Presbyterian Church in town. Both of them are dead And buried. One was named George and one was named Frank. One was foolish and one was wise, and I feel no effects from their choices. Their names are forgotten by most of my generation. Wisdom, especially wisdom without God, is not the way to lead a life that matters. You will be forgotten, and all your wisdom will be forgotten. So, what else is there? Where else do we look for meaning, if, if not in wisdom? We move on to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is about another way that we try to find a meaningful life. And chapter 2 is about pleasure. It's about pleasure. Now we have in a certain sense the opposite of wisdom here. If wisdom doesn't work, let's try giving ourselves over to pleasure. Some of these are foolish pleasures and some of them are productive pleasures. Let's see if they will work. Now we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And I want you to see there's six pleasures in this list that he gives. Six uh, wonderful things, uh, wonderful, some of them, uh, that he sees to find out if this is a way to me- lead a meaningful life. All right? And the first one's in verse 2, but I'll start reading in verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter. There's the first one, first form of pleasure. He tries Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? Now, Ecclesiastes is not anti-laughter. It's not anti-humor. The Bible is not anti-humor. The Bible is opposed to trying to laugh your way through life. All right, number, uh, the second one on the list is actually in verse 3. That's confusing. Number 2 is in verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine. Here's another form of pleasure. Tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their meaningless lives. Wine here is something else people turn to to escape life. Alcohol, drugs. Some of you try to to hide from real life with Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest, social media. It's a fake way to live. Here's number three, projects, projects, verse four. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. All of these wonderful projects. You get the sense here, actually, that the teacher is trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. He's trying to make the Garden of Eden and see if he can find a meaningful life there. And try as you might, you will not find these things in Jerusalem still. Actually, there's, if this is Solomon, we have an area in Jerusalem I've found where there's a pile of rocks that we think may be one of these pools, uh, uh, parks that he's referring to. But you know what it is today? It's just a pile of rocks. So let's try number four here, wealth, wealth. Number four, wealth, verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Wealth. Does that work? Does that work? Number five, music and art. Music and art. Look what it says. I acquired male and female singers. He had the best concerts. Ever with these singers, and number six sex sex you're going to write that down, I hope so <laughs> sex it actually gets it 's worse than that, kind of it says, and a harem at the end of verse eight, and a harem as well, the delights of a man 's heart so NIV, the n i v the language is difficult to translate the n i v is right it, it gives you the idea of what he 's talking about. But the Hebrew is a little bit more graphic. He's, he's writing plainly about sensual pleasure devoid of any of the commitments and companionship of an actual relationship. Lots of hooking up is what he says here. What else would a young man want? He says the, the, the delights of a man's heart. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It shouldn't surprise you at all that these things would be on the list, right? Because every single one of us as human beings are tempted to make a meaningful life by pursuing these pleasures. And the teacher says, I tried all of them and they don't work. I wonder if you believe him. I wonder if you believe him about that. Or if you're more inclined to believe this impulse, yes, these are the things that are going to make me happy. Think about it here. So at the end of of this passage of pleasures, he mentions, uh, uh, well, at the beginning he mentions wine, at the end he mentions um, hooking up. So let's think, we'll use the generic term partying. That's what happens at college campuses, or so we've been told, right? Partying every weekend, lots of drinking, lots of sex. That's what happens on college campuses. Are college campuses on Monday morning happier places to be on earth? Are they more fulfilled, purposeful, Uh, sane, wonderful places on Monday morning? Or are they places filled with regret? Hmm. Several years ago after the Miami Heat won one of their NBA championships, uh, USA Today published an interview with one of the stars, the star perhaps, of the Heat at the time, LeBron James. Listen to what LeBron James published, uh, what he said. What really got to me, he said, when we won the NBA championship, was how short of a time it lasted. The championship lasts just like that. The confetti rains, you go in the locker room, you pop the champagne, you do the media, you have the parade, and then it's over. It's over. You're looking around and everybody's back to normal. I was like, wow, this is an unbelievable 48 hours. I want it again. It was the best 48 hours of my life and I needed that again. I have a drive that's burning inside of me and I want to continue to be successful. Do you believe LeBron James? He reaches the pinnacle of his career, right? The NBA championship, his famous career that everybody knows. Everybody knows about LeBron James and his his skill and 48 hours at last and it's not enough for him. Why do you think you'll be the exception? You look at this list of pleasures and things, some of them foolish, some of them uh, productive. Why do you think you're going to be the exception? I could read you quotes from musicians and athletes and billionaires and Nobel Prize winning authors and they would say something very similar. I got all this money and it, it didn't help. I got all this fame and it didn't help. I, I produced all these wonderful things, all these helpful things, all these good things in the world that improved the lives of of many people on earth and it just didn't help and yet you're tempted to believe that you're the one exception that, that you'll figure this out that if you got what they have you'd be happy well LeBron James might not be happy but if I was him I'd be real happy why do you think you're the one exception now we have to keep moving here the teacher says all of these projects all these pleasures they won't work and here's why. Why they don't work? You have to leave everything behind. You have to leave everything behind. That message is in chapter 2. It's in verse 17, which we're going to read in a moment. All of these projects, all of these work, all of these pleasures, gone. LeBron James gets 48 hours out of an of a NBA championship. How long are you going to get out of the pinnacle of your career? Now, the teacher's critique of the pursuit of pleasure this is just how this text is structured. His critique of that actually comes in the context of the next way that he talks about how we pursue a meaningful life. So there's one critique for both flawed ways. So we've talked about pursuing wisdom as a flawed way and why it doesn't work. And we've talked about pleasure as a, a flawed way and one of the why it doesn't work. And now we're going to talk about the third way that uh, uh, pursuing a meaningful life doesn't work. And then I'll talk about the critiques of it. But here's the third way. The third way is work. Work. Try to pursue a meaningful life through work. Verses 17 through 23, the work and the critique are together. Verse 17, So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, the chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. He's talking about his work. For a person may work, labor, with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So he's talking about work here. And what you gain from it. What do you gain from it? Well, you die and you leave it all to the people who are to come. Uh, he's even talking about workaholics. You know, just verse 23, what do people get for all their toil and anxious striving? So they work really hard all day with anxiousness. And then at night they, they, they can't rest because they're still thinking about their work. What's your gain? Work has the same problem that pleasure does. You have to leave it all behind. And who knows what sort of person is going to come behind you. What are they going to do with your business? What are they going to do with your ministry? So work doesn't work because you have to leave everything behind. The other problem with trying to find meaning in work is that it produces anxiety and trouble. That interesting wisdom produces sorrow. All this work just produces anxiety and trouble Ecclesiastes is pro labor. Remember, he wants you to work hard. That, that's true, but don't work hard because you think it will build a life that really matters, a lasting legacy, uh, purpose, and meaning. Work working for that reason is like chasing the wind. So, what do we do? Where do we find meaning and purpose? We're going to finish by talking about how God gives us meaning. How God gives us meaning. Look at verses 24 through 26 of chapter 2. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind." Here's the conclusion. The teacher's going to repeat this six times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And his word choice is very deliberate. Joy is a gift from God. It is a gift we receive. God gives us meaning. So the toil and trouble, a hard labor that God has given us is from God. And then this, this joy that comes, this satisfaction comes under His providence too. In verse 25. So earnest, without Him... Who can eat or find enjoyment? It's a gift from God. Now, verse twenty-six is this warning, of course. Um, the sinner, the sinner, the sinner, the, the sinner in this text is someone who misses the mark, someone who tries to find the meaning of life elsewhere, someone who tries to build a life through wisdom or pleasure or work. God pulls this great reversal. Everything he's stored up to, he gives it to somebody else. It's great reversal. Have you ever thought about um, all the times we tell fairy tales to our children and why we tell them fairy tales? Think about Cinderella. How often in your life have you actually seen an abandoned stepdaughter rise to marry the handsome prince? Not very often. But you still tell that story. You like that story. Why do you like that story? Because God does this. God has a way of turning things upside down for the good of of his people. The teacher is going to return to this advice again and again and again and again. Eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil. This is not pure pleasure-seeking. Okay? These things are from God. We use them in the way that God intended. So eat and drink from God. He has warned us that eat, uh, that drinking without God, he's talking about the wine and alcohol, doesn't work. He's warned us that, that eating and drinking without God is, is, is foolish and is uh, chasing after the wind. But eating and drinking, receiving them from God, receiving those gifts from God, huh, there's satisfaction. In the midst of all the things that you can't figure out, the true things about life that you don't like, all the crooked things and all the missing things, the hard realities, the labor and the toil and the trouble, when you sit down to eat, the teacher says, receive those as blessings of the reminders, a reminder of the blessing of God. You can't fix everything. You will not be able to fix everything. You won't be able to figure everything out, but you can pick up a fork and thank God for it. Do I need to repeat my breakfast menu and talk to you about the joys of English muffins and peanut butter and jelly? I probably don't need to. They're from God to receive them as a gift. This even applies to work. Don't use work as a means to an end. If I work, I'll have a good life. Don't use it that way. Instead, the the teacher says um, find joy in the work itself. It's repetitive, it's monotonous, but you did it. You did it. You filed the papers. You mowed the lawn, you folded the laundry, you taught the lesson, you plowed the driveway, you sold the software, you groomed the dog, you installed the air conditioning, you did it. (laughs) You did it. Receive from God that as as a a joy, a a blessing. Can I suggest to you that this sort of joy and toil is one of the ways that we anticipate eternity? And, And even one of the ways that we imitate Jesus actually at the end of Isaiah 53 that the prophet is writing prophetically about Jesus and he says after Jesus has suffered and done his work he will see the light of life and be satisfied that applies to his great work of rescuing people Jesus is the most satisfied person in all of uh, creation and beyond Ecclesiastes is, is calling us to the same thing in little ways every day Take joy in the little things that God has given you. You can't you can't straighten what's crooked, you can't find what's lacking, but you can sit down and receive from God these blessings. That that work is done. Huh good. That work is done. Thank you, God, for this blessing. That's done. It's alright. That's done. And now so is this sermon. Let's pray, shall we? So, Father, we come before you this morning in anticipation and hope that you will use these words to answer the prayer that we prayed even before we we began this morning, that that you would take these words and use them to change and transform us. Oh, do us kindness. Do us the kindness of weaning us from our addictions to to building uh, happy lives in things that won't satisfy and chasing after the wind. Lord, remind us the next time we see some some person on, on the news who just won $150 million in the lottery, remind us in that moment that it's a chasing after the wind and that it's not going to make them happy like they think it will. We're so tempted to believe that. Help us not to to see people at the pinnacle of their careers and think that that's that's the good life. That's we're so deceived by that. So wean us, wean us. We pray. And and I ask that you would help us to receive this week the simple gifts of a satisfying life. Even for us, we're we're all most of us headed for lunch very soon a good gift from God. Help us to receive it with joy, not not to find in it a life that is satisfying, not not to try to soothe our sorrows with lunch, but to receive it from you as a blessing. And in the toil and the labor of this week, we'll return next Sunday by your grace. Some of us will have hard weeks. New calluses will be formed. New aches will show up in our bodies. A a new slowness will appear in our minds. We'll work hard. Help us to find satisfaction in in those, those accomplishments, the toil itself. Those are gifts, 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 and we plead that you would give those gifts to us. And now for this day, I have finished my work, my toil of teaching your word. And I am thankful to you for the privilege of doing so. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to God's word this morning.